Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre. I'm here with my buddy and fellow podcaster, Alison Tate. Hi, everyone. I'm Alison Tate, and I am a writer and author of fiction, nonfiction, and features. And I'm also a voracious reader with my very own online book club, which, frankly, it gets no better than that. And what's the online book club called? It's called the Pink Fibro Book Club in honour of the name of my once fabulous blog. Well, your blog is still fabulous. but that It is. Was... <laughs> it's, just moved, it's just moved house, that's all. It's no <laughs> longer in a Pink house. Fibro. No, it's not. It's now at alisontate.com, which is much more grown up. Well, Alison and I have known each other for years and years and years, ever since we sat next to each other back in the late 90s. Oh, my goodness, can we say that? Back in the late 90s when we were both working at Clio magazine, but that was a lifetime ago, and um, we're now uh, uh, heavily into the world of writing and publishing, and what we hope to bring you every week is news and events and opportunities and some interviews with authors in this podcast. So this week... What's been happening in the world of writing and publishing? Well, Alison, have you heard of the Amtrak Writers in Residence program? No, I have not. And you sent me the link to that. And I thought, now that looks extremely interesting. And it sounds like I would really like to go. So we should talk a little bit about that. Can you explain exactly what it is? Okay, well, what happened was um, someone in America was tweeting about how they love riding on trains and they were saying, oh, hey, you know, Amtrak should have writers in residence programs because, you know, you can have really long train rides in America and you can sit and tap away at your novel or whatever it is you're writing. And then this kind of gained momentum on Twitter and people were saying, yeah, Amtrak, you should have this. And Amtrak actually responded. Now, we'll put the link in the show notes, but Amtrak is basically offering free tickets to writers, uh, you know, so the writers save 400 bucks or whatever it is for their for their train trip, and they can ride from, you know, LA to Boston or wherever it is that they want to go. But the idea is that they will uh, write on the train, but hopefully give Amtrak a little bit of social media, you know, shout out. Now, people mm. might say it's a gimmick, but... I have to say, I I love riding on trains. Do, do you? Where do you ride? Well, I have to say, I'm actually hopeless at riding on trains. I always oh. think to myself, I oh, know I am, I, because you know I, I'm down on the south coast and I make regular trips to Sydney, and I usually catch the train just simply because it takes me right into town without having to park. And so I always I get on the train with my iPad with my very clever little Logitech keyboard attachment and I think Love to myself Logitech keyboard well you put me onto it and I, I am now an advocate and tell the whole world about it because I think it's amazing but I um I get on the train with it and I always think to myself I'm totally going to spend two hours writing and I'm going to get so much done and I don't because I find it kind of uncomfortable and I'd rather read so I end up you know writing maybe two paragraphs and then go oh this is too hard so, so where, I'd be hopeless. Where did you? Where would you say is your most productive place to write? Then, where do you enjoy writing? Where do you get well, the most out? I'm the most boring person in the world because the best place for me to write is at my desk. I, it's it's like I've got some kind of Pavlovian response. <laughs> 
to my desk. I think it's because of, you know, writing around children for so many years. Like I, I had all I had all these, you know, I've only got two, but they felt like many more mm. at home for a long time. And so I would always just be like squeezing my writing in or doing it in the middle of the night. or. And so it was just this thing of like I sat down at my desk and I knew that I had like a 45-minute sleep window mm. to get stuff done. So I would sit down and I would like go for it, you know. And, and I'm pretty sure I've just somehow built that habit into myself where I sit at my desk and that's what I do. Um, if I try to do it elsewhere, like I've tried writing in cafes, you know, because I really love the idea of it, but I get distracted. People walk in, I drink too many coffees, I'm bouncing off the walls and that's the end of me. But I what love about you? cafes. I love cafes. I work really well in cafes. In fact, I probably have written, gosh, like entire books almost in cafes. So there's something about being in a bubble, I, I actually go into a bubble in a cafe, so I don't notice any of the noise or the or the stuff that's going on. To the point where there's no, when I'm at home, <clears throat> I get my little coffee and you know I sit at my desk. But there's an there's an app <laughs> called Coffivity. I'll put put it in the show notes, and um, it's actually a website. And you 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 just put it on in the background and you press play, and it gives you the noise of a cafe. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> uh, no, that would not work for me at all. But you know what? I also think the problem is that I live in a relatively small town. So if I go and see, mm. I've got, you know, there's some great cafes here, but I go to regular ones. And if I go to a regular cafe, you know, th- someone is going to come in that I know and we're going to sit there and have a chat and the guys behind the co- in the counter know me and we have, I'm a bit, I'm a bit too chatty. I think that's yeah. all there is to say. That's yep. true. I do Finish prefer that. to go to a cafe where I can be incognito and anonymous. Yeah. Um, but anyway, what else is happening this week? You were talking about uh, Twitter fiction. What's Twitter fiction? Well, I spotted this when I was trawling around the internet the other day. And uh, Twitter fiction, it's the Twitter fiction festival. It's a hashtag. Wow. And I think that we should probably mention that because we know, you know how much I love a hashtag. <laughs> so the hashtag is Twitter fiction. And it's, um, it's an event that is being run by the Association of American Publishers and Penguin Random House. And it's basically, it's all going to happen on Twitter between the 12th and 16th of March. So this week, and it's basically, um, they're going to have different authors who will be crafting fiction in 140 characters. Anybody can jump in at any time and pop up their 140 character short story or their overview of a story or anything like that. As long as you use that hashtag Twitter fiction, um, then you're in, basically you're involved. And they're going to have a, a panel of judges who mm. are going to review the submissions and they're going to have a showcase. So you could end up in the showcase alongside, you know, some amazing top name authors which I think is is incredible what what a great and fun thing to do I'm not very good in 140 characters at actually overviewing an entire story but like I I think it's so good for your writing to to be able to do that like if you can if you can put your idea together that precisely then you've really got a good clear idea of what you're writing what your story is all about so I think you know, I reckon if you're on Twitter, it's worth having a look at and maybe worth having a go. That's so what do, I think. do you actually just, you know, write um, the story as your, from your Twitter handle? Or I read something about you can actually create different characters on Twitter and they can talk to each other. And That's and... right. You can create a parody account, which is your character, and, your, and, and you can run that, you know, you can be your, uh, the whole four days, you can be that particular character and you can outline your character's personality and your story and that sort of thing. Or you can do like, last year they had, it's on the, on the website, um, 
Lucy Coates sent out a Greek myth tweet. Sly stable boy slays king in waxed wagon wheel fiasco. Olympic Games will be dad's undying legacy, bows brave hippodamia. So she's, in 140 characters, put the whole myth together. You know, those, and it's just, I guess it's just get a little bit creative and see what you can come up with. And um, everyone sort of thinks that 140 characters is not many, but you can say an awful lot if you choose the right words. Yes, yes. I think when it gets confusing is if you decide to continue the story beyond 140 characters and people need to yes. follow on. And uh, I, don't, yes. I don't envy the judges of trying to filter that all of, out of the Twitter stream. Well, I suspect that I suspect the showcase is going to be a showcase of the best you can do in 140 characters. Mm. So I think if you can keep it together like that, then that's going to be, you know. I mean, I guess the classic example everyone always gives is the Ernest Hemingway story. Mm. You know, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Mm. And that's, you know, that's six words and Mm. that's a whole story right there, you know. So I think... um, I think that's the kind of thing that you could maybe be thinking about. But, yeah, I look, I think it sounds like fun, and I think it's definitely worth having a look at that hashtag to see what's going on. Yeah, definitely poke into it. Um, so you were talking about a book earlier this week. I was. We were discussing um, Write, Publish, Repeat, The No Luck Required Guide to Self-Publishing Success, and it's written by a couple of American guys called Sean Platt and Johnny B. Truant, which really (laughs) seriously, I do quite like that name. He sounds like a rock star. You think that's Um, a real name? (laughs) uh, Well, I don't know, but, you know, even if it's not, let's all have one. Um, So... It, look, it was a really interesting read. It was actually um, the link was sent to me by Kelly Exeter, who's you know always you know reading a lot of these kinds of books, and she said to me, "You should totally have a look at this." And it's um, it's so basically the idea is that you, the way to self-publishing success is to write a lot, mm. publish often. And then just keep going so the you so that you build a momentum you're building a long tail of your work and you're building yourself a broader presence on you know Amazon, which is a massive bookshop with very very hard to be discovered, very very hard to get found um, yeah. so it talks a lot about that and it also talks about what they call the sales funnel, which is about this idea of um, you know you offer maybe your first book free and you want to basically bring people down a funnel of many works to the main work that you 're trying to sell um, look it 's a really interesting read I, re- I read the whole book I felt it was repeat is something that they quite enjoy because there's a lot of repetition in the book for me. Uh, Yeah, no, I did. I sort of got to the end of the book and felt like they are smacking me over the head with this. But one of the interesting things I did find about it. Publish, repeat. (laughs) Repeat, repeat. Um, One of the interesting, look, I I thought it was, it was a very worthwhile read. There's a lot of stuff in there, particularly if you're interested in self-publishing, it's, there's a, they've, it's a good model for them, but they write a lot. You need to be prolific to make this work. And, um, they, the other interesting thing I thought was that they, there wasn't a lot about social media in there. There's not a reliance on social media. The reliance is on creating the work and getting the work out there and letting the work sell the work, if you know what I'm saying. So do you um, mean creating the work as in writing a book and putting book. it on Amazon and writing, writing lots book. of books and putting them on Amazon? Writing lots and lots of books and putting them on Amazon. Writing series, but also not lots, not just full-length books, but, you know, they, they've got a couple of serialised um, novels that they do, so shorter bits, you know, like you and, – and then what they do is they – it might be a six-part series. They put each of the pieces out you know, one by one, mm. and then they also sell at the end, you can buy the whole six all together. So it's kind of like, you know, if people, 
uh, interested in, in the first one, you leave them on a cliffhanger, you go to the second. So, because that's the interesting thing about self-publishing, I think, is it doesn't have to all be about novels. You know, there's a lot of shorter works out there and um, it may be that that's going to be the way forward. Serialisation, which was popular with Dickens' times, mm. may be back. I mean, this, that's, you know. This book, though, were they specifically focusing on fictional books or, or non-fiction? They actually focused on fiction, which was the other unusual thing about this book. Because a lot of these books, it's a lot of, it's often nonfiction. Nonfiction, um, particularly, I think, with an online platform and things like that, it can be a lot easier to build a platform around a nonfiction book, particularly yeah. if you've got a strong subject. Yeah. Um, because you know, Google loves you if you've got a good, you know, good. It's like copy blogger; those headlines they get me in every time. Yeah. Um, so, but this was, they write fiction, these guys. They do both, but they focus on fiction. And so the book focuses on fiction as well, which I think is, is a really interesting um, approach. I, I, I think it's, I mean, it's got four and a half stars on Amazon. I would probably give it maybe uh, three, three and a half, mm. um, just simply for the fact that I felt like, as I said, there was you know, repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, but I, I do think that if, if it's an area that you're interested in, it's worth having a look at. I think that one of the things that I've noticed literally only in the last six months in the writing industry when it comes to self-publishing is that certainly within the last five years, the number of self-publishers has increased, but, um, you know, gone from only a handful of people to maybe 10% of the writers or 5% of the writers that I've met. But in the last six months, it's 50%. 50% yep. of the writers and authors that I'm meeting have um, have self-published and it's a massive increase compared to even just two years ago. What are you experiencing when it comes to that? Are you meeting a lot more self like a lot more self-publishers or, or, or what? I, yeah, no, I'm not meeting a lot more. I'm definitely meeting more than I used to because um, kind of in the circles that I was hanging out in nobody self-published mm. like everybody was after the traditional mm. publishing deal or they were already there um so no but but I am yes I would say in the last year then I have definitely there are definitely more people that mm. I know or that I have come into contact with via you know social media or via writers conferences or via you know lots of places um because one of the things i mean i i have been a member of the romance writers of australia association for a long time and that is one area where there's been a massive boom in self-publishing and so i'm following that journey quite with great deal of interest mm-hmm. via the newsletters and via the conferences and things like that this a lot of discussion about what is being published and who's mm-hmm. What does it mean and um, who qualifies as a published author and who doesn't and mm. all of that sort of stuff. So it is an, it is an interesting area. But romance, of, obviously, is one of those genres that um, has worked really well for self-publishers. Yeah. Um, so, look, I think that I, – I just think what, it doesn't matter, you know, I think it all comes down to the quality of the work. And, and if, you, if you're self-publishing quality work and you're getting it properly edited and mm. you've got a great cover, then, you know – you're up there on Amazon or wherever, you don't look any different to anybody else. And I Mm. think that that's a great thing. But I also think that one thing I do know is that a lot of people who have self-published have not realised going into it just how much work's involved in it. Like it is a lot of work. And I think that the, 
one of the reasons that people still look for traditional publishing deals is that you can outsource not all of it because let's face it there's still a lot of work to be done Um, but you can outsource some of that work to someone else which is kind of what the whole point is Um, and the distribution aspect of it I just don't think you can overlook that when it comes to business when you're self-publishing you need to be prepared to understand you've actually started a business and I think that like um, I was speaking to a guy yesterday who an organizer of an event and he wanted he wants me to come and speak at a at a one-day event where um, every single one of the people actually has a book and, you know, is an author of a book. And I was the only one who is with a traditional publisher because he actually said, you can bring your books. And I said, I don't actually have any books to bring. I don't have a stock because I'm not the publisher, right? Yeah, Whereas yeah. everyone else is bringing their books and able to sell it on the day. And I and he kind of just kind of, he couldn't quite believe it because everyone else on the on the panel, well, not the panel, everyone else on the agenda, um, you know, has books that they can bring and they can sell. And I... I not a bookstore. I don't actually um, have the capacity to do that because I have outsourced that. Uh, so I kind of had to say to him, well, actually, if you want to sell my books, then you need to buy them from the publisher yeah. or the bookshop and, and have them available. But yeah. um, that, that proportion, again, you know, that every single one of the speakers on the day, there's eight or something. That's a lot. Seven are self-published and I'm the only one that's been traditionally published. So, um, yeah. So that- See, I find it interesting, like, I think you, because when your book, Power Stories, came out, I think a lot of people would have been given your breadth of knowledge and given the, you know, your sort of um, immersion in the publishing industry, I think a lot of people and your profile, like let's face it, you've got a great profile and a great platform. I think a lot of people would have thought that you might have self-published, but you chose not to. And I think the fact that you didn't mm-hmm. is an interesting story in itself. And, you know, I, and I, and, you know, I know we've talked about it before and it comes down to the fact that you're not a publisher and you don't want to run that separate business that That's you would exactly need to right. do. That's yeah, exactly right. Interesting. So this week, the world of, I mean, the last week, the world of blogging exploded because um, oh, yeah. blogger tickets went on Woo-hoo! sale and um, I think they sold out within a couple of hours. So yeah. good on Darren and his fantastic team for, for doing that. I think there's going to be 400 bloggers all descending on the Gold Coast in August. Um and that should be fun. I mean, you've been to ProBlogger before. What do you think about going to blogging conferences? And um, do you think that's important? And, of course, you can hear my cat Rocky meowing in the background. So Hi, Rocky. Apologies for that. <laughs> um, look, I think, I think they're great. Like, I've been to lots. I've been to, well, I say lots. I've been to quite a few blogging conferences over the time. And I think that, um, you know, if, if blogging is what you want to do and, you know, on any in any capacity really, like whether you want to be a professional blogger or whether you want to use a blog um, to create an author platform or whether you want to, like it's just, it's a fantastic place to meet a lot of people who are passionate about that subject. And I don't care what anyone says, you go to something like that and you're with all those people and the creative energy is amazing. And you just make so many great contacts. And it's, I love the fact that what you basically do too is, you put a face, an actual person face, to all of those Twitter handles and mm. Facebook pages and all of those sorts of things. And as much as those online connections are fabulous, you cannot beat the reality of meeting of meeting someone face to face, having a conversation, and you sort of you feel like, yeah, okay, we're 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 friends IRL now. We're not just <laughs> friends online. And I think that that's really great. But I also think. As you say, they have a great list of speakers and their speakers are always really inspiring and um, and I think that it's great 
it's just, I just know everyone goes and comes away totally re-energized about their blog and what they want to do. And even if they only incorporate, you know, three or four things that they did, that they heard about on the day, it's three or four things that they probably wouldn't have done if they didn't go. And I think it's worth it from that perspective. Now, if any listeners have missed out on the pro blogger tickets, never fear, because there are always people who, you know, can't go at the last minute. And there's always people who are trying to offload their tickets closer to the date. So you keep an eye on, um, you know, the Twitter and the Facebook group because you can probably nab a ticket that way. And it wouldn't be surprising yep. if somebody has already decided to sell one of their tickets because, um, you know, things things get in the way. People want to nab their ticket largely because they know they'll be able to offload it later in case they can't go. Um, but do you ever get in the situation where um, you meet somebody in real life and they're just nothing like their Twitter persona? Yes, <laughs> you do. You do. That That is definitely the case. But I say, well, in saying that, not nothing like perhaps, but I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, there's a certain understanding that mostly people will present their best face on social media. Yeah. Like, and from my perspective, like I know for a fact, like, you know, I, I, I take that sort of stuff quite seriously. I think that you need to think very carefully about what you say. I mean, I know there's a lot of people out there who are like, I speak my truth and, and that's fantastic. And I speak my truth too, but I speak my truth at home and, and I, to my friends. Mm. When I'm online, I, I, I don't go to town. I don't rant. I don't rave. I don't do any of those sorts of things that I could do. Mm. There's a number of tweets that I have deleted before I've actually tweeted them. Mm. Sometimes it feels good just to write it mm. and then delete it. And I think that that delete button can be your best friend in a lot of these sort of sets of circumstances. Um, but yeah, like I think that the people, you, 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 the people you're meeting are generally exactly who they are, but you're you're putting forward you're probably your best face online. Mm. Um, What's interesting, though, is that some people, you know, as you pointed out, the people who say that they need to speak their truth um, and the people who say they want to be authentic about their journey and about what they write about is that they don't put their best face online. And I, I wrote a blog post recently about this thing that I'm seeing in the world of business blogs because I read a lot of business blogs. Yeah. And, um, and when you write a business blog, you're typically using it, you know, to document your journey even to share what's going on in your business. But some, I, I feel that some business bloggers sometimes cross the line a bit and um, or the line certainly gets blurred in terms of what they reveal about their personal life. And I was yeah. reading, I, I have been reading a particular business blog for the past couple of years. I sort of dip in and out of it because I, it's, it's honestly like a train wreck um, that's about to happen. And this particular business owner really writes about the, the highs and lows, which yes. is, which is good. I'm not necessarily saying that you should, you know, I'm certainly not saying that you should lie about things or anything. You should certainly be truthful. But she reveals so much that it's you, you, you actually have second thoughts about whether you should be doing business with her. Yes. Because you wonder about, you know, yes. the stability of her business. Yes. Um, you know, whether you should enter into commercial relationship because it, from sometimes from the sounds of what she says, it's going to go bust at any point. Um, oh. So I think that it depends on the purpose of your blog as to how much to reveal and and what you need to write about. And I think that when you when it comes to business bloggers, you definitely need to draw the line somewhere because unless unless you're blogging for a, for some other purpose, I suppose. But well, in I terms, think, sorry, you're gone. 
I think you can be authentic without necessarily having to spill your guts. And that's, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, and as you say, it's about context because different blogs have different purposes. Yeah. But I think that, you know, like, I mean, I think that anyone who reads my blog will know that I'm authentic about where I'm at with different things. But, you know, there's a lot I don't put up there and that's my choice. And, and I think that that's something that people, you know, that particularly from an author perspective, you have to think about how much you want to actually... Um, put out there, and I, you know, you also have to think about how much, as you say, personal stuff um, needs to be out there in your professional pers- persona. I, yeah. I think that's the other thing to think about. So, yeah. Anyway, but you you read a lot of blogs. So, what's um, some interesting stuff that you've come up with this week into the world of blogging? Well, I just I thought um, that well, you know, as you say, I do read a lot of blogs, and I have to say that one of my favourite blogs at the moment because they always have something that I find interesting um, from a, a writer perspective is um, a blog called Aerogram Writers Studio mm. um, and it's aerogramstudio.com and they they do a lot of, um, they sort of curate a lot of, of um, information about writing but they do it in a very interesting way. So um, this week, for example, they've got, Stephen King's reading list for writers, which is mm-hmm. fascinating. So it's a list of 96 books. That's, that a, lot Stephen, books. that's a lot of books mm-hmm. that Stephen King thinks that every author should um, have a look at. So they're the best books that he's read over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he says he's not Oprah and it's not a book club. These are the books that work for him in some sort of inspirational way. There's um, fiction and non-fiction there. But I just found it really interesting to have a look and see what, you know, what Stephen King's reading because, you know, we know he's writing, but what's he reading? And I looked through the list and I think I've read about maybe 10 of those books. (laughs) So I've got, you know, a fair bit of work to do if I want to be reading like Stephen King. Um, So, yeah, it was just, I'm saying that, maybe a few more than 10, but I'm just sort of looking at that. But it's that's the kind of content that they run. They will talk through Pixar Studios, um, you know, top tips for writing a story, which was Mm. one of their best posts I've ever seen. And um, it's, it's a lot of great content. So if you're interested in writing, um, then I think, which, you know, technically you are, if you're listening to us rabbit on about it, <laughs> I think that um, it's definitely a blog that I would be having a look at. How many books would you read in a week, do you think? In a week? Or month, you know, do you have, do you, is there an average? I probably average about three a week, I think. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> Well, I read, I read quite quickly yeah. and, um, you know, but it's the kind of thing where I, I'm, I've usually got a few on the go at any given time yeah. and I sort of like depending on where I am or how I'm feeling. And it, it's the other thing I've found like over the last few years, and I don't know if it's an age thing or if it's a, you know, parent thing or if it's the fact that I'm just so distracted by everything else, but I, I do find it difficult sometimes to finish books now. I will yes. get to them of them and I'll just be thinking, oh, really, where are we going here? So that's my next question. Do you feel compelled to finish them? No, I don't feel compelled to finish them if I don't think that it's, If put it this way, if I get halfway through the book Mm. and I think to myself, I'm not enjoying this, I'm going to put it down, then I'll do that. If I get halfway through the book and I think, I've put this down because I'm distracted by 26 other things, then I will finish, finish it. You know, like it, it just depends on the on the book. And some books I'll sit down and read in, in 24 hours yeah, because I'm yeah. just, you know, completely engrossed in the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but I have found over the 
last couple of years that I, I really need a strong story. Like yeah. I've, you know, I, I'm, I'm at the point now where beautiful writing is, is lovely and, and immersing yourself in words is lovely, but I, I really need a story. I need a good plot to get me to the end. <laughs> I, I used to be the sort of person who could not go on to the next book till I finished this book you know I had to finish it and oh I think it's the same as you gone are those days where you know I can waste my time honest on on a book that isn't actually doing it for me so yeah these days as well I will put it down if it's not keeping me engaged necessarily and move on to the next one um but uh one of the things that we're doing every week in our podcast is an interview with our writers with our writer in residence for the yes. um podcast so you want to be a writer and who is our writer in residence interview this week well our writer in residence this week is someone who really does understand the importance of a good story and that's graham simpson mm-hmm. who's Debut novel, The Rosie Project, was one of the standout books from last year. Just from the perspective, word of mouth on this book was amazing and drove sales, um, you know, exponentially. It was it was quite incredible. So, I spoke to Graham about um, about story and screenwriting and all of those kind of good things. And so here he is. Graham Simpson is a writer of screenplays, short stories, novels, and a couple of short plays. Last year, his novel, The Rosie Project, became one of those novels, the kind that writers dream about, that came from nowhere and became one of the most talked about books of the year. It was the winner of the 2012 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript and was published by Text Publishing in 2013. Since then, it has taken off. So hi, Graham, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Alison. Great to be talking to you. All right, so let's talk about The Rosie Project. Um, it began life as a screenplay. What made you decide that it needed to be a novel? Well, I, I guess there were three things that, that drove that. Um, the first was it's much easier to get a novel published than a screenplay actually made into a film. So I was sitting on a screenplay and I thought, if I get the novel out there, maybe that will attract some, some interest in the screenplay. So it means to an end. I think much more um, fundamental than that, though, because there was, really um, that wasn't enough motivation to write a book. No. Um, I always wanted to be a novelist, but I didn't actually think I could do it. Right. I didn't think I had what it took to be a novelist. Um, because when I was about 21 and I had a go at it, I wasn't any good. And <laughs> yes, yes, I know, I know. And if I'd had a go at brain surgery, I wouldn't have been any good at that either. Um, <laughs> But, but I, think, I think a lot of people are discouraged. They, they, they sit down and they think that you, you either have it or you don't have it as a writer, um, rather than thinking, well, I guess I'm terrible now, but if it's what my goal is, I'm going to have to work at it. So at 21, I, I gave up on it, but I always had this sort of thing in the back of my mind that I'd like to be a writer, that I would, you know, I'd be driving along and I'd think of a first sentence for a story or a book. I wouldn't take it any further. But then, through all sorts of circumstances, which I can elaborate on if you like, um, I, de- I decided that I had some ability to do screenwriting. And it was sort of a, to be honest, it was sort of a second best for me. Um, but it was, it was a pretty good second best. Um, and so here I was with a completed screenplay. I had story, I had well-developed characters, I even had dialogue. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm a lot further advanced um, than I was um, when I was 21 years old, even though I haven't written any prose fiction of any you know, significant amount. Um, I've also written a couple of non-fiction books, you know, text-type books, and a PhD, 
both of which had given me something which I learned to value later, which was the ability to tackle a large project, a large right. writing project. Yep. And I think, I think a lot of um, budding novelists actually trip up on that. So I had all these things, and I thought, you know, I might actually be able to write a book now. And the third thing, because yeah. I said there were three things, yep. the third thing was something I realized really as I started writing that I might be able to tell the story better as a novel than as a screenplay. Because you could give the inside of people's heads, so to speak? Like because exactly you could. Exactly. Yeah, that. okay, right. It, it, so, how. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the novel is. is yeah, it is. is go. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, what, given that. What did you find, like, what's different about the process of the novel versus the screenplay? Like, you basically had an outline with your screenplay, didn't you? So what did you do? Fill it in or did you start from scratch or how did you go about doing that? Well, what I did was I took the screenplay. I then reverse engineered it, as it were. I produced a, a scene breakdown for the screenplay, which I, I'd had a rough, you know, a rough one that I'd worked from in the first place, but I now went back and updated that to reflect exactly what I'd written. So I had a, a list of scenes and what happened in those scenes. And then because I'd made a decision that I was going to write in first person, I had to get rid of all of the scenes um, where my protagonist wasn't present because he oh, could, obviously couldn't describe those. Wow. And, and that affected, the, that affected the logic because, you know, for example, um, there's a bit where, if you know the book, um, well, we've got Don and Rosie. Just before they meet, we see Rosie being told to go and see Don by Don's buddy, Jean. So we see what Rosie's expectations are. And prior to that, we've seen Jean talking to Don. So Jean has spoken to Don, Jean has spoken to Rosie, and now they come together and we get to watch the comedy as we know that they have different expectations. Right. Now, all I'm going to be able to do is tell it from Don's point of view, so we won't be able to see that that thing. So the comedy is going to have to work in a different way. Um, So that took some work to, to tidy up. But once I had a new scene breakdown, I then sat at the keyboard and started typing. Okay, so how long did it take you to, to actually write the novel at that point? Three weeks to do a first draft. Wow. Um, and I, I had a day job. <laughs> so three weeks, pretty intensely, because I, I was on a roll and I knew exactly what I wanted to write. But I certainly had to add um, my character's inner world. But I'd worked for five years on that screenplay and I was very comfortable that I could always answer the question, what's his motivation? Right. So that was just his motivation was just going explicitly on the page. Um, I was writing in his voice because I'm in first person, which means that I wasn't particularly concentrating on being literary. I was concentrating on being um, authentic with the voice. Yeah. And that was easier uh, for me than it was to, to try to describe a tree in a new way or anything like that. <laughs> so I wasn't forcing it. <laughs> and I just banged it out in three weeks, um, in four weeks, sorry. Did I say it was four weeks altogether? Yeah. Um, it's all right. I did, I did one week first and took it to class. I was enrolled in a class at that point, and uh, that gave me a bit of momentum and then did three weeks more. And then I spent three weeks tidying it up. So I added – I only had 55,000 words at the end of my, my first four weeks. Um, so I added another plot strand to the whodunit story. Right. Um, to the subplot. Um, and that, that really – and just expanded a few things, and that gave me the 80,000 that I was aiming for, although I felt the last 5,000 were a little padded. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I had been told that 80,000 was about the right length. So I, you know, I had 75, and I went through to add 5,000 words. And interestingly enough, when I got a contract with text publishing, 
um, they came back to me and said, look, I think we need to cut about 5,000 words out. Oh, that's said, hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you... So well, I was fooling no one. So you're just, but you're just back from a worldwide tour for the book I saw on your website. And um, did you ever imagine that the Rosie Project would take off like it has? Well, it depends where you put the ever. Um, <laughs> my, my goal was to get a Hollywood screenplay up. So my ambitions right from the start were very, um, very big. I mean, to get a film made in Hollywood is actually a bigger ask in many ways than getting a best-selling book out there. Yeah. So right from the start of my screenwriting course, that was the stretch goal. I didn't, if you asked me realistically, was I going to achieve that? My answer would have been absolutely not. But it was where I set the, the stretch limit. So... I wasn't going to back off on that. As soon as I could see the door open, I wasn't going to say, oh, no, I can't do this. Um, I think the turning point for me was being shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award, um, which was prior to publication, was only a, a few months after I'd written the book. And because I hadn't regarded the novel as being um, of, quote, literary, unquote, merit, um, the fact that I got shortlisted for a literary award just gave me so much confidence that I actually had something that was, that was well-written. I was confident in the story. Yeah. I was confident in the humour. Um, the question was, you know, was this something that people would actually say reads like a, you know, a well-crafted book? And at that point, I just thought, I'm going to give this everything I can. I was familiar with Tony Jordan's story with, the, with her book edition. Yep. Um, she'd spoken to us as, as students, and that was um, quite inspiring for me because she talked about how she'd gone on to be on the Richard and Judy selection in the UK, um, how her first sale had been, foreign sale had been to Germany, and you know, suddenly you're out in the world market, and I could see all of that opening up. It didn't mean I was going to achieve it, but I was certainly going to give it my best shot. So why do you think it resonated so much? Why do you think this particular story has just been you know of so much interest to people okay i, I think this is a, a few things one is it's, it's a story um and you know at the end of the day stories sell perhaps more than wonderful writing and right. it's a strong story um you know and it, it may not put it in line for the for the booker um but it, it puts it in front of people who would like to buy books and like like to read stories and yeah. i think that yeah yeah, we, we, we know that. Yeah. Um, and I think screenwriting teaches you story. It, it's a, uh, a background par excellence for story writing. So I think it's a, it's a strong, structured story. I think it's got the advantage of being in the zeitgeist at the moment um, in terms of having the Asperger's yep. theme. Yep. Having said that, it's six or seven years since Big Bang Theory came out and probably 15, I would guess, since um, The Curious Incidents of the Dog in the Nighttime. Yep. So it's a pretty long-standing zeitgeist. <laughs> Um, you know, Not going uh, anywhere. In, well, in fact, people say to me, "Oh, there's a." I was I was asked recently in an interview, "Oh, there's this big thing about Asperger's story. We've got the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. We've got Big Bang Theory. We've got The Bridge, and we've got yours." And I said, "Name one more." I said, that's four over 15 years or so. <laughs> it's not really such a huge trend, you know, compared with crime stories or serial killers or or whatever. So it actually makes it quite different. Um, and the third reason is that it's funny. Um, and there is. isn't a lot of genuine laugh-out-loud humour, as distinct from Rye Whitty writing, which is a different thing, but yeah. laugh-out-loud, you know, spit-out-your-coffee sort of humour in fiction. If you look for that, you're probably going to be into memoirs, you know, uh, David Sedaris, those sorts of things, yep. um, rather than fiction. So it puts it in a, in a pretty small category. Okay, so did you set out to write a romantic comedy? Would you set out to write a funny book? Like is that no, or a funny screenplay? I mean, is that what it or, or like no. what, what came first? Characters, plot? How, how did it how did it start? 
characters and plot, um, or, or the lead character, Don Tillman, and a broad plot um, came first as my concept, but that plot has disappeared entirely, or almost entirely. All right. um, the Don Tillman character has remained, but I first envisaged it as a drama. And it was when I took um, some early work along, um, along the school, featuring the Don Tillman character, and the light relief moments that I had in there to sort of you know, set off the drama just had everybody in stitches. And as my uh, comedy teacher, Tim Ferguson, was to say to me a couple of years later, if you are gifted a comedic character um, who creates laughter wherever he goes, don't waste them on drama. Yeah, and, so true. And I, made, and I made the decision myself without that input, but I made essentially the same decision. But, you know, if you've got people rolling around laughing, that's... You know, and, it's, and that's without even trying very hard. If I, if I tried hard for comedy, um, this could be a, a lot of fun. Um, there was an ethical question because my, my character does have Asperger's syndrome yeah. and it was a, a very important ethical question which I had to work through and which I'm happy with the result of. Yeah. But I certainly didn't decide to write comedy until I was very confident that I was doing something that was um, yeah, the right thing. Fair enough. So one of the things I noticed in the book, and I, I would say this clearly comes from your you know, screenwriting, playwright background, is that the dialogue is really good. It's really spot on. And I guess my, my question, it's not easy to do that. So I'm wondering what the secret is to writing good dialogue. Um, conciseness. Um, my, my lesson, I, I don't think I, look, whatever way I've got of turning a phrase in dialogue, um, I have not worked on or studied. It's just come to me fairly naturally. I try to write as people would speak, taking out the ums and ahs and so on. Yep. Um, but what you learn in screenwriting, one of the rules of screenwriting, one of the guidelines, is never more than one page on the, on the screenwriting page, and we're talking about a 90-page screenplay or a 100-page screenplay, never more than one page of dialogue or people will get tired of it. Many times in my early short films, I exceeded that, and every time I did, chunks of it would end up on the cutting room floor. Right. And you would realise how little dialogue it takes to do the job if you are efficient about it. If you if you just cut it down to its essence, and and for me, I think the reason that the dialogue works um, in the Rosie project is it doesn't go on forever. It, it's sharp. There's not much superfluous stuff in there. I mean, we know in real life, of course, we go on and on and on. <laughs> but this is a this is about as I'm doing now. But this is about saying what's the essence, what needs to be said, and what can we take out. So did did you like do you read it aloud to yourself and then cut what you do, what sounds wrong? Is that how you do it or is does no, do you just hear it in your head now? It is not about sound, it's about information. Okay. Um, okay, so um, sound is about the way I write a phrase, but the information is about what is said, how much is there. Okay. And yes, I do some tuning on the um, on the intonation, on you know, on on the the way that characters would speak and so on. But far more important in terms, I think, of making it work is um, is cutting out superfluous stuff. Okay. Next question, and this is quite an interesting one, I suppose, at the moment, given your world tours and the, how busy you are with the Rosie Project. Do you have a writing routine? No, I don't. Um, and this comes out, of, and I'm not saying that other people shouldn't have a writing routine, <laughs> but I had a very erratic um, sort of day job. I used to teach seminars um, sometimes four-day seminars, uh, and I might do two back-to-back and quite often overseas. And there was absolutely no time for writing when I was doing those seminars. You would come to, at the end of the day, you've been up on your feet all day, you're completely played out. All you want to do is grab a drink and, and fall asleep. 
um, and you do that eight days or something on end, yeah, and even on the weekends, you were just too played out if you'd been travelling to do anything. Yeah. Um, but then you might have several days off. Um, so my, my thing was I wrote when I had time. Um, it was more about cutting things out of my life that got in the way of my time. So for practical purposes, I don't watch television. Yeah. Um, I didn't do a lot of reading while I was um, while I was writing, um, but then I just grab the time when I can, and sometimes I work eight or nine hours in a day writing if I'm on a roll, and other days, many days, I do nothing at all. Uh, and look, something that's really important, I think, is people are told write every day. Um, I think there are a lot of activities around producing a novel which are not writing prose. They're planning, they're problem-solving. I spent a full day just walking around trying to come up with the first sentence for the Rosie Project. Oh, I wanted right. A, I wanted a strong sentence. Now, I didn't do any writing that day, um, but it was a very important day in, um, in the production of that book. And you got very fit while you were doing it. <laughs> I do a lot of walking around. As Toro said, trust no thought arrived at sitting down. Yes, I, I tend to agree with that. I'm a, I'm a walker and a weeder. I like to weed while I think... <laughs> Yeah, look, there's actually, you know, there's actually good evidence out there that, um, that says that doing routine activities is a good way of getting the creative juices flowing. Okay, so are you working on something new at the moment? Um, I've just handed in the sequel to The Rosie Project. Um, yeah, and it took me almost exactly a year to do that. It took me just a couple of weeks under a year. Um, I'm about to give a, a little talk um, on the weekend called, um, you know, in part of a program called A Novel in a Year. Um, so I feel... Eminently qualified. I was going to, to say, look to at you, now. you're the master. Um, is there more performance pressure on you with the sequel? Like now that you've had a hit, is there more, do you feel pressure? I'll tell you what I felt. I felt that my first book, I had all the time in the world to do it. It was a labour of love. Who knew where it was going to go? And then at the point where I sold the foreign rights for it and realised that I could now make a living being a writer, and it was a conscious decision to give up the day job, I said, right, my day job is now that I'm a writer, I now need to be professional about it. And writing a second book in a year um, was, you know, that, that felt like doing a profession. And, you know, I've worked as a professional in other areas before. But, okay, I've got a deadline to meet. This has got to be of high quality. And, frankly, I was enormously proud. I handed in two, two months early, um, as I would when I was a consultant. I would hand in a consulting report um, early so that you get feedback rather than shock anybody on the day with the wrong thing. Yeah. And, and as I did that, I felt I was very proud of myself, to be honest, because I thought, okay, I've actually behaved as a, as a professional writer rather than a hobbyist. Well done. Um, let's just talk about this conference presentation seminar business that you, that you used to have. Now, we need to talk about the duck suit because... <laughs> we need to talk about the duck suit. We need to talk about the duck suit because you say it's the most often quoted interesting fact about you, which I had to laugh at because uh, is this a case of journalists looking anywhere and everywhere from an angle? I mean, you know, the fact that you did turn up dressed in a duck suit, I can see why they would have thought that was worth discussing. But is it one of those things where it's a small fact and it's become one of these widely quoted things about you? Is that a strange, is that a strange yeah, thing? Yeah, look, I, yeah, and the funny thing is I put up on my website... Um, that here's a bunch of other potentially interesting facts about me. Yes, I saw and a UK, that. A UK journalist decided to write an article just beating me up for being a narcissist. And oh, you're kidding. Stuff. I think that's hilarious. I and actually probably having Asperger's myself. See, yeah. I found that really interesting, and I actually think that um, you know listeners should pop over to your website and look at those interesting facts because there's a lot of life experience there. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, has that all come together? Like, you look like you're an overnight success with this.
this Rosie project in some ways because it's kind of come from nowhere. But you know, like there's a lot of stuff going on there that's kind of brought you to this point. Do you do you agree with that? Is it is it all the stuff that you've learned along the way? Look, I, th- I think there's two ways of looking at it. One is a sort of romantic way, if you like, and that's that Bridges of Madison County quote where he says, I, I feel, you know, along the lines of, I feel that everything I've ever done in my life has been bringing me here to you. Oh, and, and it was sort of like that when I sat down at the at the keyboard, I had done so many things that were going to inform what I, what I actually wrote. And I'd finally acquired most of the skills I needed to write a novel from when I'd been 21. Um, I think the other way to look at it, though, is you use what you've got. Uh, <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever. We've all got experience. We've all got things that we can use. We, we, we adapt and, and we use that. If you've been an Olympic athlete, then you've got, some, you've got some level of discipline and training and so on. You're going to use that, and I don't have that. So um, I, I think there were a number of things I learned over the years that I learned without any intention of writing a novel um, but just which proved tremendously valuable to me. And, I mean, obviously, all your life experience is potentially useful. But um, just to go back, that ability to um, handle a large writing project was was really important. And I learned – I actually did my PhD in design theory, and I learned a lot about how you create something. I mean, I applied originally to screenplay, but given that my book came out of the screenplay, it's effectively applied to the book – and includes things like whether you work top down or bottom up, or all, all those sorts of things, and just handling you know big big projects that yep. was very useful to me. So would that be like let's talk about your three top tips for aspiring writers? Would that be one of them? Like learn, you know, as you say, a, a novel is a massive project, and I think you can often be at the start of it and be looking at this huge mountain of words that need to appear and and be completely freaked out by it. Is there is there a, a, a certain method to learning how you work and managing a large project? Is that a is that a, something that aspiring writers need to learn? Yes, they do. And look, frankly, the simplest thing I would say is, and this will go against advice that they're given by others, um, yeah, there's this thing that, that writers are either planners or pantsers, you yeah, know, yeah. right by the seat of their pants. Uh, I would say be a planner. Okay. Um, if you are new to this game, because I see t- constantly people who manage to write about half a novel and give up, and I know exactly what's happening. They can write the, the first act, the first quarter, because it's the premise. Yeah. It's the setup. And then they get in the middle part, and what they lack is escalation. They can't write the thing as, a, as an escalating story, and it just falls away. Um, and it's because they don't have a plan, they lose confidence. I, I, and I would say, if you can write by the seat of your pants and you are um, Tess Jerison or something like that and you're turning it out that way, I'm not going to stop you. Okay. But, you know, you're flying, terrific. But if you've written, if, you, if you're struggling, then you know, don't say, oh, but I'm a pantser. Say, pantsing isn't working for me. I'm going to try the other way because it's the way almost every other discipline works. Okay. And are there any others that you, any other tips you'd add to that? Yeah, get help. Um, I would. <laughs> well, one of the things I learned in screenwriting is it's treated as a collaborative activity, particularly plotting. Um, most writers work alone. Most prose writers work alone. Most screenwriters, particularly in television um, and in film, they end up having it forced on them. They'll be collaborators, um, work in a collaborative way on on story, and I think there's room for that. But more broadly, I would say join a writing group, join a class. Um, you need the the feedback, you need the um, the encouragement around you, you need the theory, all those things. So I think, I think it's really well worth doing. Okay, great. All right, Graham. well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And good luck with Rosie Project Mark II. Thanks very much, Alison.
great interview, Al. Did you enjoy talking to Graham? I absolutely loved it. I mean, you know, he's a he's a he's obviously done a lot of interviews over the last year. In fact, we had a bit of a laugh before we started. I said to him, "I'm pretty sure you're better at this than I am. You've had more practice." But you know, he's a great guy, and he's really, you know, the thing I really like about him is, um, so he did a Facebook chat with us with the Pink Fibro Book Club last year. He's he's really, I, I think he kind of um, shows what writers need to be now, which is he says, yes, you know, you, you kind of get in touch with him and you say, um, you know, look, I've, I'm doing this for 100 people or I'm doing this for 20 people, will you come? And he says, yes. And that's a great thing. And he's really generous with, with his knowledge and his experience, which I think is wonderful. And I, I'm not, you know, more power to him is basically. Mm, the Mosey Project's gone nuts. Um, but speaking of Facebook chats and being able to talk to people in the writing community, there's actually quite a number of ways people can connect with us, right? Yes. Because number one, you're the chief social media chick for the Australian Writers' Centre on our I Facebook am. page. So yes. anyone who wants to uh, have a look at that, that's facebook.com slash writers centre. And we'll put the links in the show notes. But also, you, you and you're also our chief tweeter. Also, you have your own book club and your own community online. So where do we find that? Um, well, you'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer, and I will send, uh, obviously, the link. And I'm also on Twitter at, at Al Tate. Um, and I have my website, obviously, alisontate.com. So there's lots of places to find me. Um, and, yeah, I love it. You know, like I think that the Facebook and uh, Twitter communities are so brilliant and so immediate, which is yeah. what I, I, is, is great about them. And you can talk to them. People send me questions. I answer questions. I ask questions. And that's possibly my favorite bit. <laughs> One of the useful things is you, there are so many different types of writers out there. I mean, you write fiction, you also write nonfiction, and you have a certain area of interest in, and you, you're into more literary fiction, whereas I have a different bent. Um, so I'm really into creativity, but I'm also into um, you know, writing nonfiction, very much so. That's my passion. And, you know, I've written a business book. So a lot of people come to me because of the nonfiction bent. And yeah, I'm at right. Uh But what we also ask our community certain things. So what have we asked this week? Well, I had a fabulous, I was sitting here and I was writing um, a chapter for my work in progress and I just had this thing of, of this character and I wanted him to have a voice like Morgan Freeman, you know that voice? Yeah. And I could not think of the right word. I was like, I tried a whole range of different things. So I put it up on my Facebook page as a help the writer exercise, describe Morgan Freeman's voice in one word. And I got 38 or 39 different options. Wow. And they, I know it was great. And this is all within the space of about 10 minutes. And it, um, they ranged from things like chocolate and Merlot oh. and caramel yeah. to things like considered and commanding and wise and intimate. And, of course, somebody always comes up with the perfect thing, which was mellifluous, oh. which is one of those words that should be used more often. I was like, oh, yes, that's beautiful. Um, so I had a whole range of different options to, to, to sort of choose from. You know, I had resonant and I had velvet and I had captivating. Someone described it as God, which I thought was, was hilarious. I and then I thought, God in he probably has because it's actually, you know, pretty good really, isn't it? Um, and then my, my favorite is Merlot. Merlot, I know it's just beautiful, but you know, it didn't that didn't quite work because I'm actually working on a children's uh, um, middle, middle grade fiction, so I couldn't quite describe what did it you as. Go with? 
I ended up going with gravelly, I think. Because somebody put raspy and I thought, yeah, it is a little bit that. I mean, it's one of those things. It had to be a word that a kid would use. Like it had to be a sound that a, that a child, that a 14-year-old boy would know. So that's what I ended up. I ended up going with gravelly. But you know what? It's only the first draft. So by the time the book actually comes out, it may well be something completely different. <laughs> so what is it that you're writing at the moment, Al? Um, I'm working on a on the second book of a middle grade um, fantasy adventure series, which I'm um, hoping to make a you know huge announcement about anytime soon. But um, it's going to be the first book will be published by Hachette in October at this stage, and then the um, books two and three will come out sort of you know not too not too long after that. So it's very very exciting, and mm. I can't wait to actually share all the details with everyone. Are you enjoying the writing process? Are you? I mean, are you doing it every day? I. You know what? I'm actually loving it. It's. It's really. Uh, this is probably the most fun that I've ever had writing anything. This really? particular series. Oh, it's just. I think when you write for children, I think that there's a certain freedom in it because there's just a you just you tell it it's, I, I think it comes back to what I was talking about before it's about the story and with kids it's really about the story like you've got to you, you, it has the writing has to be good because you have to it, they're, they're relatively short mm-hmm. so um they're sort of 50 to 55,000 words mm-hmm. so you know you've got to get everything in there they have to be jam-packed and you they need to know what's going on they need to know what these characters are like in a fairly succinct way um but the story is everything. And so you kind of like, you can sort of like find, you, you, it's fun. I really, I'm loving it. <laughs> I just love it. I'm just loving it. You do so many things. I don't know how you, how you fit it all in. But anyway, we've come to the end of our podcast now. Um, what are uh, you doing? And we're going to be back next week with more news and more, more chat, more discussions. We'd love to hear your ideas. And, you know, um, if you're listening to this and you want to cover, you want us to cover certain topics or you have some questions, certainly let us know. Uh, but um, until next week, what are you doing? What have you been doing, you know, to, to keep yourself busy? Well, I've um, so obviously I'll be very much immersed in my Morgan Freeman gravelly voice for a little while um, this week. Um, I'm trying to average about sort of twelve to fifteen hundred words a day at the moment with that. So, um, yes, yeah, that's keeping me going. And I'm also obviously like you know the the features still need writing and the, the all the other things still need doing. So I'm kind of busily doing all that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I I had lunch with my agent last week on Friday, which always makes me feel incredibly glamorous and. <laughs> terribly terribly sophisticated um but yeah no for the most part i think you know a writer's life is is sitting at the desk writing the words and that's what i'll be doing this week so what about you what are you doing because i know your world is very diverse Uh, well i am looking forward to just being at home for several days in a row because um recently i've just been on planes trains and automobiles because i've had a number of speaking engagements going to you know a few places i've been in you know melbourne and sydney and brisbane and um, all over the place. But I think one of the fun things, though, about travelling, even though I much prefer just being at home with my five furry children, um, <laughs> I, one of the things um, about travelling is that um, you get to see what's out there in different types of bookshops as well. And um, I was in Brisbane last week and I got 
you know, a little tickle, a little thrill when I reached into the back of my seat pocket and uh, took out the Qantas magazine. And on the cover of the Qantas magazine, so it was the cover story, was about our tour, about the Australian Writers' Centre tour, food writing in Vietnam. So <gasps> then they How had, exciting. Yeah, it was great. So there were pages and pages inside, which was actually the exact journey, step-by-step step, um, wow. of, of our exact tour, um, food writing Vietnam, because it was based on the the story was based on last year's tour and um and then I got off the plane and I was hurrying past the airport bookshop and um and caught some that one of the shelf caught my eye because on the same shelf there was um Gina Lee's memoir which is Call Me Sasha and she's one of our Australian Writers Centre graduates and it's a fantastic book. Um, it, it's, it's you know, incredibly raw and really authentic and really personal and with a, but with a great message. Um, but right next to it, so that's a memoir, non-fiction, yep. but right next to it was a fictional book, A Savage Garden uh, by Chris Muir, who is also one of our Australian Writers Centre graduates. And I think what's interesting about Chris's story is kind of like Graham's as well. You know how Graham said, that he um, always wanted to be a writer since he was 21 yep. and, you know, he just yep. wasn't – and it took – it's taken years. Uh, well, with Chris, this particular book, this particular story, which is set in Africa, uh, he's been working on it for 10 years and it's wow. only just kind of seen the light of day and now I have no doubt it's going to be a bestseller. Um, uh, Random House are going to, you know, I mean, there's there's an entire series that, that that's – no doubt set to roll out um, because it's just full of action and it's um, and it's just a really compelling read. So that was really exciting just to see the Australian writers. That's fantastic. Up in lights, kind of in like that. Um, but yeah. So until then, um, we will chat next week, Alison. We will, and I look forward to it. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>